How to Blow Up Podcasting, and Nine Ways to Innovate Journalism and Media Online. This is episode 86 of Media Unplugged, the podcast that goes behind the spin to reveal what's really happening in media. Media Unplugged with Tom A. Sacker and Mark Ramsey. Welcome to Media Unplugged. I'm Mark Ramsey. And I'm Tom A. Sacker. Tom, it's been a while. Welcome back. Yes, thank you. No, you were the one who was gone, so welcome back I to know, you. I know, it's all my fault. Okay, <laughs> how to blow up podcasting. This is uh, from, we actually, both our pieces today are from Neiman Lab, which is great. Um, this piece is from uh, an article by Tom Webster. Do you know Tom, by the way? Yeah, I do. I like Tom a lot. He's, uh, he's got a great first name, and, and he's a really deep thinker. So he's... I actually prefer his last name. That's, <laughs> <laughs> that's, <laughs> yeah, Tom's terrific. Um, so this is called Podcasting's Next Frontier, A Manifesto for Growth Beyond the Already Converted. And I've got to tell you, you know, I've had a lot of thoughts over the years about what's good and bad, right and wrong about the podcasting space. I've taken a lot of positions and caught a lot of flack and gotten in a lot of arguments and had a lot of people <laughs> criticize me and just like everything else. And um, this is a piece that is so on target and so good. I feel like I wrote it. I, and I, if I didn't feel uh, like I wrote it, I would feel like I wish I had written it. You know? uh, so I guess I'm going to be the enemy this time then. <laughs> yeah, you're going to be the enemy this time. So good. We'll, we'll get into it and we'll see where we agree and disagree. All right. There's so, by the way, I'm going to find some things in here which I think aren't objections to what Tom wrote, but rather kind of other ways of looking at some other things. But yeah, let's get into it. I'm glad that you have some opposition. To no, some I stuff do, but I want to hear, hear your point of view because, I mean, he's he's writing this on the heels of giving this presentation at Podcast Movement, and you gave a presentation there as well. So yeah. I'm interested to find out, based on what you heard and saw, if any of your views have changed, been updated. So I think this is a good launching off piece for that. Yeah, I absolutely think so. So let's get into it a little bit. So the, the, the basic uh, thrust of his piece is, look, let's not focus on the people who say they're listening to podcasts. We always talk about that growth, and that's great, but let's focus on the people who aren't listening to podcasts. And he points out something that I've been droning on about for years, which is the growth in podcasting is actually quite slow. Right. Yes, it's growing, but yes, it's slow. And he also zooms in on the one statistic that I always consider the single most important statistic of all – which is not familiarity, which is not monthly usage. It's the number of people who say they listened in the past week. That, in my mind, is the single most important stat because last week implies some recency, some regularity, some frequency, and that statistic has topped out at a big fat 17%, according to the, uh, the Edison numbers. And he acknowledges that. He said, we have to get out of our own bubbles and understand the real bottlenecks to the growth of podcasting because it just isn't growing that fast. Thank you, Tom. <laughs> so before I keep going on, um, are you on the same track as me so far? So far. I mean, he started okay. off with something that kind of puzzled me a bit when he said that he said that podcasting, he thinks it's a medium. So I started to think about that. You know, I said, okay, I know the internet's a medium. Radio is a medium. But podcasting, because if podcasting is a medium, that means that watching a movie on your phone is a medium. Reading an article on your phone is a medium. I don't see how all this stuff are mediums. Because look at it, a lot of podcasting is listened or is consumed through YouTube. 
So yeah, I think, okay, I see where you're headed. I see where you're coming from, and I see what you're reading there. And I, I, I'm not going to pretend to speak for Tom other than to say, I think if he were here now, what he would say is that you are misinterpreting his, his point. That okay. what, he's, what he's really talking about and who he's really talking to isn't, he's not talking about the expression of audio on demand across all platforms. He's talking about people in the podcast space who think the world begins and ends with their RSS feed and this thing called podcast. Okay. People in the podcast space who are so stuck in the bubble that they think the problem with, quote, podcasting is that we need to teach more people how to use, quote, podcasts. He is, I think, right about that, and I think you would agree with that point of view, and I think he would certainly agree with yours. That, And here's how I sum it up, and he kind of alluded to the, this later in the piece, is... These, this is my language. This is what I would write if I were writing this. There's no such thing as a podcast. There's no such thing as podcasting. There are only shows. There are, there are audio-driven shows. There are video-driven shows, depending on if there is a medium that, you know, it's, I mean, even on YouTube, you would have to admit podcast, audio podcasts are audio-driven. Right. But there are only shows, and all people care about are shows. So if people say, I'm not familiar with podcasts, or I don't have a reason to listen to a podcast, I mean, what they're saying is literally true, because no one says, I don't have a reason to watch Roku. I don't have a reason to watch, you know, uh, um, uh, YouTube. They say, what is the show? What is the video? What is the strip of entertainment or information that... Um, you expect to attract me there. Why should I bother? Tell me the show. I you know, get let it. me listen to the show. I get it. That's and, and and that is a perspective, Tom, that you and I are already there. Yep. The vast majority of people in the podcast space are not. There's still a huge amount of people in the podcast space who are saying, We're better than radio. Thank God we're not radio. Um it, you know, there's this whole still weird kind of podcasting thing where people view the silo based on its borders rather than its potentiality. Okay, and, and that's what I wanted to make clear, right? Because in his article, he had some interviews with some people, uh, video interviews with people. And imagine if he had said to any of these people, not, have you listened to a podcast? You know what a podcast is? Not, not that at all. But if he had said something like, hey, did you see that interview with Oprah and such and such on YouTube last week? Or did you listen to that interview? Mm -hmm. And they would say, yeah, I listened to that interview. Okay. If it was just listening to an interview, isn't that in the delivery of audio via yes. the internet? <laughs> yes, right? it is. And he would agree with you that it is. All right. And this is, consider his audience. When you're speaking in front of a big crowd of podcast movement, you're not talking to Joe and Jane ignorant of podcasting. Right. You're right. talking to Joe and Jane too far inside the bubble of podcasting. And that's why this is written the way it is. But he does make the points that you're describing. I mean, here's one I met now. The 52% the uh, who, um, uh, who, who know what podcasting is but don't listen to any, he says they're, they're, they're different people than the existing audience for podcasting. They don't need podcasting explained to them. They need a reason to care, right? Mm -hmm. um, they have no, they've had no reason to find out what a podcast really is because we haven't really given them a reason to find out. And he's getting closer and closer to your point here. I'm just going to go farther in so that I can, 
I can find it. Good, because um, I want to ask you something about that 17% thing that you said about the growth oh, curve. Oh, okay. Um, here it is. Here's the section that I couldn't agree with more. Uh, the nevers who agree that there are so many podcasts you don't know where to start, right? The people who say, that's right. why I don't listen. He said, look, if you read this as a discovery issue, you've read the wrong... Of course. You've, you've, you've read this wrong, friends. These aren't people who already listen to podcasts. These are the people who have never listened to a podcast. The issue is not that there are too many. The issue is that there isn't one. Here's right. the simple truth. Just as it was for Netflix, Hulu, and any other form of new online media, the on-ramp is the show. Yeah, look, Netflix... When you get used to you using Netflix as a platform, so you're clicking around and you're saying, I don't know, you know, we've seen that. What's new? I don't know. Does that look good? That's a discovery issue. You're already on the thing and you're looking for something to consume. Mm -hmm. So the question is, <laughs> and again, this is the interesting part. If I'm on the internet, right, because that's where this stuff is coming from, Right. And I want to consume audio. Do you mm -hmm. see do you see how like the decision making process works? I'm yes. on the internet. Now I desire to consume audio. And that's what I thought was interesting because he said the growth curve he says the growth curve of streaming music is nearly identical to the growth curve for smartphone penetration. So then right. why doesn't podcasting's curve look like that? Now, I want to know, do you think he's being rhetorical? Because if you yes. take a look at all the radio stations in the world, what no, yeah, percentage listen to talk Tom, radio? He's absolutely being rhetorical. Okay. He's, he's not asking that question as if he really doesn't know the answer. He's asking the question that <clears throat> many people in the podcast space ask and then going on to propose that the answer is that when you're looking for music, you're looking for something, right? Right. You're not looking for anything, and you're certainly not looking for everything. Well, in the podcast space, the issue is having that something. That's why he goes on to list the top podcasts, which are primarily, you know, let's, for lack of a better term, highbrow, and then turn around, as I've done before, and list the top TV shows, which are primarily lowbrow. And as he goes on to say, um, let's see, uh, this the is top shows of 2017 and 2018 t TV season was Roseanne. In short, it's crap, but it's high-quality <laughs> crap. We need more high-quality crap. Now, okay. I, I, I would not agree with his designation of Roseanne as crap, quite honestly. It's just if you, if you say it, it's the opposite of, you know, um, 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 all things considered. Right. Then uh, the opposite of all things considered in this American life, by the way, is not crap. It's stuff that appeals to popular audiences um, that isn't strictly in information. And, I, and by the way, the stuff that I've tried to create... You know the Inside Jaws know, series, Inside Psycho, Inside. All of that has been in that has been much closer in spirit to Roseanne than to This American Life, and intentionally so. In fact, and you don't know this, but you know we've gotten some great reviews from Inside Jaws, and then just last week, I should send this to you. We should have made this one of the one of our topics. You should. There was a there was a P. You don't know about this. You should make it your rant. Hold on to it. Hold on. No, no, no. <laughs> I, I I'm not I don't want to rant about it because it's not because oh. it, it needs to be interpreted in proper context. But there was a review of Inside Jaws in Slate. And they had a reviewer essentially go through Inside Jaws and then the two previous this woman listened to pretty much everything we had ever recorded. And it was a on balance it was a negative review. But her criticisms were 
absolutely the criticisms you would expect of someone who came to the content expecting Terry Gross, came to the content expecting Ira Glass, came to the content expecting Serial, and what they ended up getting was something that was intentionally more vivid, intentionally more dramatic, intentionally more emotional, intentionally more evocative. And their response was, well, that isn't podcasts. That's ah. television or film. Ah. Meanwhile, <laughs> we intended to create television. I'm sorry. I, we intended to create television or film. So the thing she was critiquing, I mean, she would actually make points like, you know, there's no, in an, in an era of, of uh, Oscars so white, you would think that there would be more sensitivity to the fact that what Ramsey is doing is elevating these, you know, these, these, these filmmaking heroes, all of whom are white males. Oh, and I thought, well, <laughs> the, the fact that they were white males is kind of separate from the issue she's trying to make. But the purpose of this series is not to right historical wrongs of Hollywood. It's to tell a compelling story about people, you know, who against the odds did great things. And that, I, I mean, that aspect is exactly what Tom's talking about. <laughs> that is my Roseanne. That is my high quality crap. And that is a story worth telling. And it's because of the absence of more things like that, that we don't have more people with more reasons to listen to more audio on demand, no matter what it's called. End of rant. <laughs> oh, man. Where, where do I even begin with this? Look, <laughs> look this, this, is, this is what I think is going on. I think, I think that we have to kind of twist turn the whole argument upside down for a minute and say when people are searching for video content, what are they looking for? And then Tom Webster comes along and he says, oh, they're looking for NCIS. They're looking for, you know, right. all of those shows, right? Okay. Mm -hmm. Now, when people are looking for audio-only content, what are they looking for? Now, he, mm -hmm. he basically laid it out. He said 77% of the time, they're looking for music. Mm -hmm. That's what they're looking for. Mm -hmm. So if that's what they're looking for, then if you're going to do a podcast and you've got, I don't know, you've got that 23% of the population that's looking for something other than music, is that something that we should be looking to grow as, you know, the whole thing about let's grow podcasting? Look, you got 23% of the population that wants to listen to audio other than music. Mm -hmm. Are you giving those people what they want, when they want it, how they want it? Are you giving them the shows that they want? Well, that and that, I think, too, is Tom's point, which is... The people who are interested in things beyond music, and by the way, I would also challenge the assertion that it's only 23% compared to what? The 23% who have a sense of what's out there, the 23%, you know, in other words, that's 77%. Uh, uh, um, do they know what the point of reference is? Do they envision America's Got Talent? Do they envision Roseanne? Do they envision uh, inside Jaws? No, I hear or do you. They or do they envision, you know, just guys talking, wasting my time? Who knows what they envision? In other words, there's still, I, I, just as even in the television context, you know, I mean, it wasn't always Handmaid's Tale. 
it used to be, you know, what's my line? No, look, I hear you. Look, this is, this is where our fundamental disagreement is, okay? Because okay. when he wrote that the number one competition for your podcast isn't another podcast, it's Netflix, he's lost his mind. Look, mm -hmm. this is what I'm trying to tell you. Okay, let's go with his, let's go for a minute with his premise. Podcasting is a medium. I'm not sure that it is, but let's go with it. Then you've got to ask yourself something. What is unique about people's use of this medium? When, where, why do they use it? Audio is pretty much a solitary, multitasking, listening experience, right? I don't know too many people that have like a bunch of people over for a cookout and say, let me turn on uh, cereal. You're going to love this, people. Because you'll have a bunch of people saying, shut that thing off, put some music on. It doesn't right. appeal to those types, to, to a large audience or even a medium-sized audience. I think it's a solitary experience. And I also think it's a multitasking experience, right? It's like, okay, I'm on a stationary bike. Okay, I'm driving. I'm at the gym. I'm cutting the lawn. Whatever I'm doing, I want some more stimulation into my brain. Give me something to listen to. So that's mm -hmm. my bias about about this medium it's you've got to give these people what they want where they want it what they're doing you've got to understand it because netflix if you think you're going to come out with a podcast that's going to draw someone away from breaking bad you have lost your mind it's not okay, going to happen that's a good point so let's unpack that a little bit because i and again, I'm, I don't want to be in the position of speaking for Tom, but I, that kind of Netflix analogy is the kind of thing that I would make, but I would, I would mean it as an intentional overreach. Um, what I would really mean by that, if I were to say it, is that your, your competition isn't every other podcast. Your competition is whatever else I can do with my attention. Now, your point is that... Netflix is a better match to what I want to do with my attention when I'm at home at night with my spouse, right? right? I couldn't agree more with that. That said, I think there are a lot of occasions, mobile occasions, occasions where you're driving, occasions where you have a long commute, occasions where you're on a stationary bike, where you want to be engaged in a meaningful way where just listening to a playlist is potentially too passive, at least for some people some of the time. Yeah. And that's the window of opportunity for a multi, you, see, you use the word multitasking, which is a great example. The beauty of all this audio is that you can multitask to it. Right. Now, the stuff that I do, the, the more, you know, the, the more ambitious, uh, uh, sonically dense, uh, story-driven stuff um, requires more attention to be sure than just listening to a playlist of music. But that's why, <laughs> you know, that's why, there's so many ways to listen to a playlist of music. And uh, again, you know, let all that world compete. Let all that kind of passive lean back world compete with itself. I'll take the world of the people who want to have a more foreground, active, lean forward, uh, multitasking experience where I want to hear something that moves me in a meaningful way. I'll take that. But what I'm telling you, and I think what Tom's telling you, is that that audience is all, that potential audience is a whole lot bigger than the fraction which has so far been realized by podcasting. Okay, I can't disagree with that. <laughs> <laughs> now, just touching on some of his uh, numbers in here, which I think are interesting, which I have a different take on. 
So real or perceived listening barriers. Um, uh, I just want to touch on some. He's got some great graphics in here, which I would take on. So uh, let me start at the beginning. Real or perceived listening barriers. Here's what people who don't listen to podcasts are thinking. 37% don't really understand what a podcast is. Well, you know, 48% not sure how to listen to a podcast. This goes to your point of why are we making the question so complicated, right? right. Why, if, how, here's a great show that you have to listen to to appreciate. <laughs> exactly. What's to understand? You know, 65%, has, there's so many podcasts they don't know where to start. We've already talked about the flaw in that. 80% think they don't have a podcast app, and of course they do. It's just that, you know, you, again, you make it sound so complicated once you put the P word in it. Um, 62% say listening to a podcast can use up their data plan. Well, we know that's absurd because people will watch video until they're blue in the face, <laughs> and that uses a whole lot more data. 30% say most podcasts are for educational purposes. Well, you know, if that's true, it's a fault of the category, not, not, not uh, the, the listeners. 50% say podcasts are too long, which is what all people always say about things they don't understand and don't have any better reason to say anything about, right? Yeah. Um, 33% would listen if there were podcasts with music or about music, which in a sense is another way of saying 33% would rather listen to music. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Um, there, there are other statistics in there uh, like that. 61% would listen if there were topics they were interested in. Well, you know, again, these, all these questions are so academic, right? This is kind of getting back to what you were saying. This, this is making an academic experience out of what should be so terribly simple. Here's an audio show, right? You listen to it by audio. You can get it on any of the platforms you like to get any of your entertainment. Um, do you want to listen to it or not? That's Here it, it is. Yeah. It's called The Handmaid's Tale. Here it is. And boom, all of a sudden people are watching Hulu. It's In many ways, I think... We get so stuck with our own propaganda, our own BS, and our own baggage, and our own kind of industry jargon and constructs that we can't get out of our own way. Um, you know, the silo, in a sense, confines the contents of the silo to that container when the contents want to roam free. <laughs> yeah, look, if you look at anything from a quote-unquote industry perspective, then everything becomes, uh, I, I don't know, something that you should be afraid of, right? I mean, why hasn't radio just, why didn't they dive into podcasts? For, because from an industry's perspective, how do we know it's going to pay off? On the other hand, if you're working your ass off to create these thousand true fans and you have audio that you can send to them, via the internet that's free and easy and engaging, then that's something that should help you do just that. Mm -hmm. So that's it, it's the difference between looking at something as, as something that scales and makes money or looking at something that I can move people with and, and change the world. And podcasting is very big when it comes to the latter. I think that's true, and that's why there's so much passion associated with it, and that's why there's interest. And, you know, the analogy that I made in my presentation of Podcast Movement was that, to me, it's like the independent film of audio. You know, it's not necessarily, you know, Black Panther, um, but it's what 
it's it's what's attracting the artists, it's what's attracting the attention, it's what's attracting the media, it's what's attracting the buzz, and it is the engine that makes everything else world worthwhile. It's what you see at awards time, although I'm going to talk about that later. <laughs> um, so anyway, I I, I think we've spent a ton of time on this, more than we usually do on any one topic. Oh, people ever. only like short podcasts. We're in trouble now. <laughs> yeah, we are in trouble, but uh, <laughs> you know, because of the nature of it, I think it's worth it. Um, Look, just so- keep going, right? I've been listening to Joe Rogan. I've been listening to Sam Harris. These guys run an hour, hour and a half. If people are interested in what you're talking about, they will stay tuned in or they'll hit pause and come back to it. That's exactly right. That's what the data shows. Exactly. You're listening to Media Unplugged with Tom Asecker and Mark Ramsey. Nine ways to innovate journalism and media online, Tom. This is, uh, I put the end media thing in there. This also is from Neiman Lab because I thought that some of these points really have more to do with, or have as much to do with things that are not journalism. Oh, no. This uh, is how to basically innovate a brand. That's, that's great. I'm glad that's your take as well. Well, let's touch on a couple. And I picked out a couple, and, and you may have a couple more. I know we don't want to go through all nine. But the, the first one that I thought was interesting, this is from, like, these guys went around the world, did a bunch of interviews with a bunch of journalists, hundreds of journalists, and came up with some themes. And their first one, which I thought was valuable, was from neutrality to identity. Uh, in order to make people relate to and identify with you, you must show them what you stand for. Show them who you are, from which perspective, geographically, sociodemographically, or politically, you view the world. I thought this was such a neat point because, you know, in journalism in particular, there's so much stress to be not just neutral, but, you know, to, to, to stick to the facts in a way that's almost slavish. Mm-hmm. I, I can tell you anecdotally from the people I've talked to who are making podcasts that involve journalism, uh, journalists, involve interviews, involve uh, journal, uh, 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 newspaper companies, etc. There's, and if you put a sound effect in there, <laughs> <laughs> they will have a meltdown because if a door opens and, it, and they can't as- ascribe that to the actual opening of that door in that moment from source audio, they will freak out. So it, it is kind of crazy. Well, look, I mean, you've consulted with with organizations that consider themselves as journalists, and they are <laughs> they are probably the most how do I say this without uh, I don't want to go over the top here on my comment, but for people who believe that they are purely objective, they are so identity driven, these people, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that, and, and that's the interesting in, in, in part about this article. I mean, it's highly instructive, but there are ramifications for society that, that they didn't really consider in here. Because if journalism is a brand, mm-hmm. and a brand means appeals to a particular subset of some audience, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Then... <laughs> Where are people going to get both sides of an argument? Because guess what? Most people, when they choose a brand, they don't want the other side of the argument. They want the argument that enhances their identity, their feelings, their knowledge, their sense of self. So if journalism is supposed to be bringing us things to help us be well-rounded, then this, this article is not doing that. Do, do you see what I'm saying? 
Yeah, I do. I do. It's almost like the purpose of this article is that the goal of journalism innovation, which is the purpose of this article, has nothing to do with societal wellness. Exactly. You know? It has to do with the economic viability of journalistic That's organizations. That's it. He said that they have to challenge deep-rooted professional dogmas like objectivity, neutrality. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, So you look at that and you go, wait a minute then. Is every journalistic organization going to appeal to the ideologies of a particular group of people? Is that what we're heading for? I don't know, but I just wanted to toss that out there. Well, that's, I think, an interesting point because you're right. The, the, the piece really kind of, it's almost like it's, it's, it's aimed at innovation for not the New York Times, not the Boston Globe, not the L.A. Times, not the Washington Post. It's aimed at innovation for everyone on the second tier down. Well, I don't know. The New York Times is starting to really pick up, you know, its membership, its subscribers, readers, because it's becoming a little bit more ideologically leaning. And, and I mean, people are talking about it. So, so is it, I, I, now is it becoming more ideologically leaning? Is that is that? That's what you hear is the that, right saying, right? So, see, I mean. that's the thing. I mean, this is this is what I'm trying to get at. I'll give you an interesting uh, anecdote. Uh, I did some research for a broadcaster. We were talking about um, people's reaction to the news in in on the radio, and we were trying to get a sense of whether certain news topics are polarizing and polarizing in a good way or a bad way or what the impact was right. if we even needed them. And one interesting tidbit that arose was this, and that was that just mentioning the name of the president of the United States can, can pack a polarizing impact, um, unintended, having nothing to do with the rest of the sentence. And, and it can be read as a bias one way or another. Of course. Just the mention of the name no, of course. in the be context of a factual <laughs> sentence <laughs> look, can be man, read as a bias you, one way or another. Yeah, look, if you, do a, if you do some show to Hindus and you say hamburger, it's going to have an effect. I mean, these are people who worship cows. So I get it. It's going to have an effect because there are these feelings that people have and when they tune something in and they hear something, it triggers the feelings, right? It's interesting. It's it's. But what that suggests is, if you're in a place where you where where telling the facts, however one defines them, <laughs> is impossible. Just on a on a, you know, just in fact, it's impossible. Then um, this article becomes all the more important because what this article suggests is that look, you know, the the wistful attitude you have, Tom, for uh, objectivity and in fact is uh, is a, a a figment of you know our imaginations uh, that not only no longer exists but had its moment in the in the sun. But uh, as you know, if you go back a couple hundred years, that wasn't even how journalism was born. I know. Look, so look, this, look. This, this is kind is, of a this new is, construct. Philosophically, you could you could spend days trying to tease through what these people are saying because on the one hand they're saying, "Look, you want to be economically viable in a free marketplace mm -hmm. as a media entity. You have better stop being neutral and form an identity." 
right? A unique mm -hmm. point of view. Stop right. being omnibus, their second one, and go to niche. In other words, go from mass to targeted, right? Mm -hmm. Right. So what from does that mean? So if you're an American news organization, is your news targeted to Americans? Or since America is fragmenting into all these subgroups, do you appeal to the subgroups' interests and points of view? And that reinforces the filter bubble that all these people are trapped in anyway. That's right. Right? That's right. So, well, I mean, I think what you're describing is a world where the most authoritative publications le lean into these trends and continue to project the aura of neutrality to an audience that no longer knows it when they see it anyway. Yes. Well, no. This is what they've got to realize if you're a journalistic organization is you have to remember this phrase media consumption. Mm -hmm. And you have to be really cognizant of what you're feeding people. Sure, you want them to be attracted to it and to feel good, but you've got to care about their long-term health, right? Which means you've got to figure out how do we engage and educate people to create tolerance, connection, I don't know, thoughtful civil discourse, stuff that we're not seeing because everyone is, you know, appealing to a particular subgroup or psychographic. This is what scares me about this. This thing is mm -hmm. absolutely right if you're selling beer. I see. And it I makes me nervous if you're it's selling journalism. That the, the, the points you're making are, are in here later, right? But the point number one is the one we just read. All of those other, like from flock to club, you know, in other words, take readers, make them members. Make the, we've talked about that before, right? Make them members. Right, right. From ink to sweat, which means it's not just about what you publish. It's about engagement, you know, the, right? Engagement, from the, speaking to listening. So stop being so listening. interesting. Try to be interested in them. Right. Yeah. So that I, I I get your point that this is what you, you could Miller Beer could have this these same uh, these could be the same points to advise Miller Beer. Absolutely. Right? From problem to solution. Um, well, that yeah, was a no, good one. None of these things are wrong. Yeah, but there are a lot of good ones in here. But all of them follow point number one, which is the one we started with, to which is from ne neutrality to identity. Yep. And and your point is the minute you go from neutrality to identity. You've created a filter bubble. Absolutely. Anything else you do within that filter bubble still lives in the filter bubble. Yeah, because that's what identity is. It's a filter bubble. Yeah. Uh, so, so like I said, this there's such a catch-22 going on, right? Because if you lose, because you're trying to be a little bit more neutral, a little bit more mm -hmm. tolerant, if you start losing people who don't identify with you anymore, what happens? This is a really interesting time for the media, for journalists, not for the media, not for well, the I'll media. I'll tell you what's going to happen. I mean, I'll tell you what's going to happen just in terms of not culturally, but, but you know, in the short term. What's, what's going to happen is that the, the, the broad approach will not be able to sustain the mass audience because someone else will do a better job of niching that corner of your mass than you are. Right. And people will naturally embrace according to their tribe or, or you know, move according to their tribe. Uh, as a result, you will be forced in some meaningful way. I mean, what is it that the Washington Post says? Democracy dies in darkness. Right. I mean, that itself 
is an identity statement. Uh, yes, it is. Yeah, and you know the interesting thing is, and because of the free market, it doesn't matter how deep your pockets are. So you could have a billionaire come out of the woodwork and say, I want to fund this journalistic opportunity in order to give an objective view, whatever that means, of the world. Mm -hmm. Well, if it doesn't draw people in, it doesn't last. <laughs> because right. it's not appealing to their identities, it's not going to draw people in. That's right. It's, it, That's right. This is a dilemma. But people should read this article because it, it is really interesting and it has a it has a lot of ramifications for i think our democracy going forward and again it's from neiman lab the article is called 54 newsrooms nine countries and nine core ideas here's what two researchers found in a year-long quest for journalism innovation although i would say tom one of my findings for journalism innovation would be shorter headlines <laughs> <laughs> we'll make that number 10. <laughs> okay, it's time for Rants and Raves. Oh, rant or Rave, Tom? Man, man, Rants and Raves. I know you probably have like a dozen of them because you've been away no, for I a only, while. No, I only have one, believe it or not. Okay, well, this is a special one just for you because I think I may have discovered the ultimate in artisanal products. Oh, no. <laughs> actually, actually, I don't really think it's it's handcrafted, so... Let's not call it, let's call it the ultimate. Wait in, a minute. You mean artisanal products need to be handcrafted? Well, that's news right be. there. I think it's supposed to be. <laughs> but let's call this the ultimate like niche luxury brand. Okay. <laughs> okay. So it comes in flavors like strawberry and orange and mint. It contains coconut oil. You know, that's kind of really beneficial for you. It's more fibrous than lower price brands. And it's also, it's cruelty-free, it's vegan, yeah. it's gluten-free, and it retails at around seven times more than, like, comparable brands. But you can buy a gift pack and save a few bucks on it, a yeah. gift pack of four. And, and here's the thing. It's meant to be a bit of an indulgence, right? I mean, that's what a luxury is anyway, right? One of the founders mm -hmm. said, I think, I sometimes think of it as something like, Pellegrino water. It's something that feels luxurious, but it's something everyone can afford and enjoy. Every mm -hmm. day I get one, I feel like it's a small way to treat myself. Now, I pulled a five-star Amazon, Amazon review to read it to you. Here's what it says. I was skeptical spending this much money, but thought I'd give it a shot. Wow, all caps. This stuff is awesome, exclamation mark. It arrived much faster than expected, and when I opened it, it was packaged beautifully. Clearly, this company takes pride in their product, and I appreciate that. Can you guess, do you have any wild guess what this thing is? Uh, I, no. It's den I, I dental, can't dental floss. <laughs> no, I'm not kidding you. It's something called Coco Floss. It's a luxury oh, no. dental floss. It's from some company in San Mateo, California. And, and they want to make flossing fun. Even, of course they do. Even a little aspirational. I mean, they have like, a, like the plastic container. It comes in, it, it has printed on it, relax and floss. Mark, oh my gosh. if someone can, and like, I don't know how successful they are, but if someone can turn floss into an aesthetic lifestyle purchase, an aspirational brand with a huge price premium. 
what the hell is stopping everyone from doing the same thing with their brand? Because I can't That's think true. of anything else that people hate doing than floss. That's very I true. I mean, who, who was that comedian? Remember Mitch Hedberg? Yes. He, he said, I hate flossing. He said, I wish I had like one big curvy tooth so I didn't have to do it. <laughs> <laughs> he could if he wanted to. <laughs> oh man, that's great. You'll um, never beat that floss one. No, 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 no. I I certainly won't. And I don't even know what this is, whether it's a rant or a rave, it's somewhere in between, I guess. But this is something I've been paying attention to in the news this week. Actually, something I've been on for a while, long before this happened, because I've had some conversations with various people who can do something about this that I I can't go into now, but <laughs> In the news this week, okay, you may us, have seen... You drew us in, man. <laughs> well, I did, not as well as you did. Um, you've seen the news from Oscar, right? What news? Oscar's new category. Have you seen the new Oscar category, the new category for the Academy Awards? No. I don't even know that I want to know what it is. Well, that's part of the problem the Oscars <laughs> is having with their television ratings right there. Um, Oscar has a new category, and it's called the Popular Film Category popular film so not yep, the best a, film the ones the all us idiots this is like a the new most. category designed around achievement in popular film and of course everything is achievement in right That's so this is something that i've seen coming for a long time you can't look at the the roster of of uh, candidates for best picture every single year see all these indies many of which nobody has seen i mean last year um there was the florida project was one of the nominees for best picture I have a client in Orlando, right where the Florida Project was Right in the motel I, there, right? <laughs> and, and, and the guy had never heard of it, right? <laughs> He's right? It's right there. It's set in your town. I mean, you know, back in the day when the movie Philadelphia was made, I can assure you the folks of Philadelphia <laughs> knew about that movie. So anyway, it's not his fault. It's that this is what constitutes the best picture roster nowadays. So... It, it was inevitable that something like this would happen. Now, I, I'm, again, not going into any details, but I think the way they're handling it is wrong. I would handle it differently. But they've gotten a lot of pushback because Hollywood is so full of just rank phonies that um, no, here's, Rob, no. here's Rob Lowe, for instance. <laughs> Rob Lowe, okay? A one-time, I believe, host of the Oscar ceremony. I think he did the notorious year where he had to do a duet with Sleeping Beauty that was like ranked as one of the most embarrassing moments in Oscar history. <laughs> so here's what Rob Lowe tweeted. The film business passed away today with the announcement of the popular film Oscar. It's been in poor health for a number of years, probably beginning the, the, right around the time of that duet. It <laughs> is survived by sequels, tentpoles, and vertical integration. This from Rob Lowe, a guy who will never be seen in a movie <laughs> that's nominated for an Oscar ever. Elijah Wood, another actor who will never be seen up on the big stage. Best popular film? Oof. Um, let me find some others uh, here. Uh, let's see. Here's another one. I don't know who this person is, but giving out an Oscar for best popular film is like giving out a Nobel Prize for hottest abs. No, actually, I thought <laughs> if the Nobel Prize is in literature, then it would be like giving a Nobel Prize for most popular book, would it not, Tom? Wow. That sounds like kind of a really good idea. I kind of like the idea that, oh, Stephen King might be due for a Nobel Prize in literature. That doesn't strike me as nuts at all. <laughs> Here's one from Billy Eichner, comedian. 
hearing from so many millennials today who cannot wait to watch the Oscars now. Now, I think he's being tongue-in-cheek. <laughs> who knows? But I don't think he's entirely wrong. Here's right. another. Mark Harris. Um, oh, Christ. AMPAS just announced that it will be presenting some awards off the air and creating a new category to honor popular films. These are bad, pandering, desperation-based decisions, and I hope they reconsider. Tom. If, if their goal is to have an event which celebrates movies that people actually know about as opposed to the ones they don't, I think that's a legitimate thing. <laughs> I mean, here he went on to publish. He said, here's a list of, uh, no, here's another guy. Here are the 10 highest grossing films of all time when accounting for inflation, i.e. America's most popular films. Every single one was either nominated or won Best Picture, with the exception of Snow White, which was given an honorary Oscar. Popula uh, popular films are films. Tom, he's... What does that even mean? The, the list of the top 10 films, this is not the, the relevant list. When you pick the films that throughout the entire 100-plus year history of Hollywood are top 10, this is not the right list, right? The list is, the, is not the list... I mean, Gone with the Wind, Star Wars, Sound of Music is not the list. The list is the most popular films in any given year. That's the list. Many of those are not going to make this list of all-timers. So I just found this whole conversation. And then Jason Blum from Blumhouse, a company that creates lots of very popular, very inexpensive, primarily genre films, with the exception of few films that break out, even genre films that break out, like Get Out this past year, right. um, said uh, it's a step in the right direction. What and is? And I think he's right. This, yeah. this, this, this move, I think he's how right. It they, is a step in the right How are they direction. going to judge this? Well, that's part of the problem. They right. didn't specify that. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. So everybody's upset about something that they don't even understand. Yeah, but what they know is how are you getting... Look, popularity is defined oh, according to consumption. Oh, those stupid masses. Right? What do they know Come about on. movies? <laughs> I know, I know. This, this is what I find so funny here. All of the people who owe their livelihoods to the more popular movies, right? The industry itself owes its existence to the most popular movies. All of these people are complaining about this, even though their passion projects, the things they do with their spare time that they, they do out of love, are all possible only because of popular films. So the, the, <laughs> just the rank hypocrisy here. No, I get it. Don't it's you? just overwhelming no, to me. you get it. You get it, too. Look, it, it would be like authors sitting around, you know, <laughs> sitting around in some bar drinking a high-end high glass of wine, pissed off because the most popular book last year was like a, an adult coloring book. That, that pisses people off. <laughs> yeah, but it pisses them off. It has nothing to do with whether or not that thing deserves to be popular well, well, or whether that, it deserves to be rewarded for being popular. That's true. That, that is very true. <laughs> All right, I just thought of another rant, okay? Uh -oh. We're so far over time, I might as well go with it. So here's another rant. I, and this is another thing you probably don't know, but it's just uh, just. Why do you keep crazy. assuming I don't know anything? I don't assume <laughs> it. I'm just, I'm, 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 I'm hoping. Otherwise, it's not fresh. Okay. <laughs> so as you know, I just completed the run of Inside Jaws, which was very successful, thrilled, happy, and all that stuff. <laughs> I'm, I'm real happy with it. So um, among the press things that happened, the media attention that the thing got, was attention for one, I would say, a three-minute segment um, where I mentioned how uh, there was a murder that took place oh, yeah. in Provincetown. Oh, yeah. Somebody saw somebody on the film and identified them. and Yes. Okay. Did you, have you, you remember this from the podcast, Yes, I right? remember. If I listened to the podcast, so I remember that. That's this. right. 
Um, so it was about three minutes of the podcast, and the story is, just for anyone who doesn't know, hasn't been paying attention, so um, the writer Joe Hill, uh, lifelong fan of Star Wars, son of Stephen King, etc. Star Wars, uh, lifelong fan of Jaws, son of Stephen King, um, grew up with this. Stephen King is a kid. He had three uh, laser discs, and this was one. So uh, Joe grew up with this when he was young. His favorite movie, and he sees in it, there was this, this, this murder up in Provincetown, unexplained, never identified. They call it the Lady of the Dunes, uh, dead body, thrashed to pieces, not from a shark, from a human being. What happened here? Joe was watching Jaws one day, and he saw this figure that matched the description in a crowd scene in Jaws. And he wrote up something about this about three or four years ago. So uh, cut to, I don't know, eight months ago maybe, I'm having lunch with this friend of mine, breakfast with a friend of mine, somebody who knows Joe, and said, did you hear, and he knew I was developing this Jaws uh, podcast. He said, did you hear the story of the murder that might be solved by Jaws? And I said, no. <laughs> hmm. And he said, yeah, Joe Hill wrote up a whole thing about it. I'll send you the link. He sent me the link. Sure enough, Joe had written this up. I said, well, this will make a nice little vignette in the podcast. So three minutes, I tell the story, boom, end, right? Cut to, uh, I don't know, two, three weeks ago. And the rap, who had done really a nice job of writing up various things about the series, said, I want to write up this thing about this one anecdote from the show. And I said, great, go to it. Um, and he did. He wrote up this thing. All of a sudden, it catches fire. Before you know it, I'm getting calls from USA Today, which I was in two days ago. Uh, Boston Globe wrote something on it. Um, the, the, oh, the um, I, it's in every publication under this, the Guardian. It's everywhere. I'm interviewed by people. I get a call from the PR folks who say there's a chance that today's show national wants you on with your Joe Hill to show, talk about your this. Your whole show should have been about that. So, <laughs> that was, this is hence my rant, Tom. It said it's three minutes of the podcast. And then the worst part about it is, uh, you know, inside edition calls. Can we send a car for you and take you up to LA and, you know, and I said, no, and, uh, but we got Joe Hill. And I said, no, I can't do that. So I'm watching the inside edition piece and there's poor Joe Hill in his jaw shirt. And I'm thinking this poor guy, Joe Hill is going to hate me for doing this to him because here he's got a career. He's a famous writer. He's writing all these great things. He's doing all this great work. And all anybody wants to talk to That's him about funny, is, is this speculative thing on this, you know, background actor in Jaws, and people are fascinated by this. So then, okay, here's the funniest part. I don't know if this is the funniest part. So I'm at lunch in L.A. with an agent who, you know, handles this kind of stuff. Right. And he says, you know, I just got a call from a guy, and I'm not going to mention his name, but he's a guy, a well-known podcaster guy, and he said, I've got this story that I want to turn into a series. It's called The Lady of the Dunes. And the agent said, <laughs> said, do you, have you heard this series inside Jaws? The guy says, no. He said, go to episode six right near the end and listen. <laughs> oh, man. Unbelievable. So, yeah, there's my vent for the week. If you go search up right now inside Jaws, more than anything what you're going to see are stories about the lady of the <laughs> Oh, dudes. no, I saw that on Twitter. There you go. Yeah. And Joe Hill and me, like a couple of, you know, clowns talking about this thing that neither of us would like to spend any time talking about 
because it has nothing to do with the stuff that matters. God so there's my that. there's my my surprise rant for those of you who've stuck with us for very nearly an hour now. T- putting to test the notion that people will actually listen to this show <laughs> for more than 30 minutes. <laughs> that is Media Unplugged for this week. I hope. Please remember to subscribe to us at Apple Podcasts, Oh, no, Spotify. wait, wait, Mark, wait, Mark. What? Tom, what now? In that Tom Webster article, he said not to say all that stuff at the end of the podcast. Please subscribe um, to us. He said that it's a waste of time. Tom, you didn't look ahead in my script. Oh, okay, keep going. I took it out. I took it out. And then a guy, a, a very helpful guy who's listening to the show right now, um, at, uh, I got to look up, see if I can find his name. He, he pulls me aside in the Panera and he said a couple of tips. He was actually very helpful. His name was Ravi uh, Jayagopal from Subscribe Me, subscribeme.fm. He said, I have a couple of tips. And one of them was, don't ask people to rate the podcast. It doesn't do squat for the podcast. And I said, okay, Ravi. <laughs> So thank you, Ravi, for that. Now let me finally get to the outro. Okay. Please remember to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, wherever you're listening now. Oh, Tom didn't want us to say that either. No, that's my point. He didn't even want you to say that. I don't know what he wants you to say. He just wants you to say, see you later. You can follow Tom on Twitter at Tom Asacker and Mark at Mark Ramsey Media. Send us your questions or comments using hashtag Media Unplugged. If there's a media topic you want us to cover, tweet us. This is the thing Robbie told me to do. You can also email us at mramsey at markramseymedia.com and tomasacker at gmail.com. See, there you go, Tom. Uh Uh-oh. Catch up on older episodes, <laughs> older and much shorter episodes at our website, Media Unplugged. Yeah, but we haven't done one in episode. a few weeks, so this is, we're making up for it. Uh, you could call it that or you could call it just really <laughs> stretching our welcome. Special thanks to the producer of Media Unplugged, who right now is wondering where the day went, Jeff Schmidt. <laughs> Exciting audio from media. You can find him at jeff-schmidt.com. He will probably be listening to this podcast because it's never ending. <laughs> for the inimitable... Tom Asacker, I'm Mark Ramsey. Thank you for listening.